Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Bob Dylan was a musical genius and one of the greatest songwriters of all time. He didn't follow leaders. He chased that thin, wild, mercury sound. He never looked back even as the times changed. And as the times changed, Bob Dylan changed. He tried on and discarded identities like they were masks. He transformed. He transfigured. And somewhere along the way, The Bob Dylan that you thought you knew died. This is his story. This is Dr. Ed Thaler. It's August 4th, 1966. Day number seven with the patient Robert Zimmerman, a.k.a. Bob Dylan, here at my home in Middletown, New York. (sighs) Bob is still depressed. This accident seems to have taken its toll on him mentally more than physically. This time out from what was a hectic lifestyle appears to have brought on some kind of reflection for him. I often catch him looking dazed. When I ask him what he's thinking about, he just says, the lives I've lived. When he's sleeping, I often hear him shouting or babbling about his future. Right now, I say he is showing signs of a delusional disorder. And to be honest, I'm worried about his recovery.
I was having a difficult time in my life by the end of the 1980s. I did some things I wasn't proud of, personally and professionally. Although, I must say it wasn't all that bad a decade. Might have been my most interesting if you look closely. Not that the public can ever get past the 60s. But the end of the 80s, though, I was a mess. I changed so many times that I just assumed it would keep happening. I didn't realize you can't force yourself to change. It has to happen naturally. That made me feel lost. I've always found when you're down and you think you can't get any lower, you're wrong. You can always go lower. There's always a bottom after the bottom, a new level down, new desperation, renewed despair, renewed anger, fresh trouble, fresh disappointment, and of course, fresh blood on the tracks. Chapter 7 Bob Dylan is a dead man. It was nighttime in the big city. The street I was on was dark. It was cold. I saw the grand house I'd been looking for. I took a deep breath of the cold, black air and walked up to the front door. In the second half of the 1980s, the words stopped coming. I was a mess. Suddenly, they just weren't there anymore. The well had run dry. I'd lost interest in my career, to tell you the truth. I'd reached a dead end of creativity and, not to sound like an egomaniac, but what was there left for me to do? That made me feel lost. For a while, I'd wanted to have a big selling single, take it to number one. I'd never had one, but the charity single, We Are the World, which I was involved with, that did go to number one in 1985. I was thrilled, even if it didn't look like it in the video. And yeah, I know there's some sort of viral video of me or whatever, kind of half-assing it at the end of the song, but there were a lot of greats there who really deserved to be heard. Ray Charles, what a voice. Point of Sisters. But a number one was the last thing left on my list. I'd done it all, seen it all, and lived so many different existences. At the end, I thought I'd reach some sort of nirvana, a zen-like calm, perhaps. But actually, I got to the top of the mountain and found that the view was the same as it was at the bottom. You can always go lower. I said in an interview at the time, if the records I'm making only sell a certain amount anyway, then why should I take so long putting them together? That's how it felt then. Pointless. Worthless. Static. Mess. I started sleeping in what I'd worn that day. I used to change my identity, but now I couldn't even be bothered to change my clothes. I also took up a new hobby. I liked wandering the streets on my own. I always did it late at night, always to places I didn't know. I enjoyed exploring deprived city districts the most. 
especially parts of town where no one recognized me. I started near my house, but then I went further afield. I'd get cabs to places and walk and walk and walk. It was peaceful. It was the only way I could get away from whatever was dragging me down that day. Depression, loss, disappointment, a lack of creativity. All that just disappeared in the darkness of those areas. I was anonymous, nothing to no one. I was having a difficult time. People get into the music industry for fame and money, right? But actually what you find is, really, all they want is the money. It might not seem like that to begin with, but it always ends up that way. Fame is, well, here's a good idea of what fame is like. Imagine walking into a room, any room, and every room you go into from now on. The moment you walk into that room, it's over. Everyone in that room changes, like that. You can actually see it happen. Life becomes phony when you're famous. Fresh trouble. After years of that, I wanted to be part of something else. Something that wasn't me. Something that wasn't Bob fucking Dylan. I first saw The Grateful Dead in 1972, and I had been close with their leader, Jerry Garcia, ever since. I liked them as a band and as people too, so it made sense to tour together. That happened in 1987, when they were riding pretty high on that Touch of Grey song, and just like with the Hall of Fame, Live Aid, and a lot of other things I had participated in at the time, it went to shit. I did some things I wasn't proud of. Rehearsals had gone well. I'd picked out this killer pink guitar. I really felt part of the band, a proper member. We must have gone through a hundred songs. Man, I was having the time of my life for a minute. The first gig was in Massachusetts, a big place, a stadium. We were in good spirits, but the band seemed a little thrown off by my set list. I felt we should mix it up. Like I said before, I like to keep bands on their toes. Might have been my most interesting. I couldn't wait to get out there, to play my songs with the dead. We walked out onto the stage. This is it, I thought. This is what I've been missing. Our first song was The Times They Are Changing. We started and I, I don't know what went wrong, but it all sounded wrong. Everything sounded like it was in the wrong key. Fresh disappointment. It must be the song, I thought. Man of Peace was the next and it sounded the same. It was as if we'd never practiced. I'll be your baby tonight, John Brown. I want you. All wrong, wrong, wrong. Renewed despair. What the hell was happening? It sounded so bad. We limped off the stage that night with me wondering what I'd just been part of. The next gig, back at that damn JFK stadium where I'd graced the Live Aid stage a few years earlier, it was the same. In fact, that night was even worse. I'd started to forget the lyrics to my own songs. Not only was I finding it difficult to write new material, but I was forgetting the stuff I'd already written. Great. Bottom after the bottom. I put all these problems down to back pain. I'd been suffering a lot of it since that motorcycle crash two decades prior, but, but honestly, thinking about it now, it might have had something to do with my drinking at the time too. The tour went on like that. 
couple of years later, I showed up at a dead show in Inglewood, California. After the first half of the show, I was desperate to get up there and play with them, so I went backstage and asked. Of course, Bob, we'd love that, Jerry said right away. And so the second half of the show was all of us on stage again. The sound of the dead was immense. It was so tight, but had a free spirit. I was thrilled to be standing there on stage with them, but I suddenly realized I got a bit carried away. When you're down, you think you can't get any lower. I didn't really know any of their lyrics. The mic in front of me became a viper. I was scared to approach it. I started off strong, but ended up mumbling into it. Mumbling in front of 10,000 people. Basically that We Are The World video clip, but a hundred times worse. It was my fault. I had demanded to play dead songs, none of my own stuff. I didn't want to be Bob Dylan that night. I couldn't bear it. I changed so many times. Bob Ware from the band shot me a hateful look when I repeated my mumbled performance on the next song. In fact, the whole band did. I looked down at my feet and realized how drunk I was. My shoes looked blurry as I weakly strummed the guitar. After that song, the band demanded I sing my own songs or I had to get off the stage. We played a couple of mine and it was great. Well, I thought so anyway. The next day, I called the Dead's office and asked if they would have me in the band full time. I was serious, man. They took a vote. A fucking vote. Even worse than that, the answer was no. I was crushed. I drank an entire bottle of whiskey that night. Still remember, you can always go lower, right? Another band and another tour would see my situation get even worse. It'd be a real heartbreaker. house is still and so quiet. In one room I can see beautiful rungs all laid out over a wooden floor. I'm clutching a load of papers tied to my chest. Suddenly I feel like someone is behind me. You're an alcoholic. That's what she said to me. It's not true, of course. She is one of the women I'm currently seeing, by the way. I put her in a house in Beverly Hills worth 500000 and all she has to say is, I drink too much. No gratitude, none whatsoever. I am giving up women. Write that down. There's always a bottom after the bottom. Although, having said that, Elizabeth Taylor now, there's a woman. She came on to me once in Washington, D.C. You heard about that? It was at a tribute concert to Martin Luther King Jr. God, she was something. I was in a flannel shirt, and she still came on to me. Wasn't all that bad. You hear that? Look, drinking has always been something I've done, but it's not something that slows me down, okay? I'm not drinking morning, noon, and morning. No, morning, noon, and, and night. 
a new level down. That tour with the dead was... It didn't work. I told you that, right? But you know, to hell with it. We did it and it sold, so what's the problem? People bitch and moan that it wasn't this or it wasn't that. Forget them. So, anyway. Oh yeah, the tour. Right, so... The Grateful Dead tour happened around the time I was also going on tour with another band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I got married around that time, too. I probably should have mentioned that. I've always been good at keeping my personal life a secret. People didn't see that one coming. Cheers to me, I guess. Look, sure, I was married, but I had girlfriends, too. Not a big deal. Everyone involved knew the situation. New desperation. What was I saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. Those Heartbreaker shows. They were great. We had a ball on that tour. I loved it. My new wife was singing backing vocals with me. Her mom was part of that, too. On tour with my mother-in-law. They said never do it, but it worked out just fine. Wasn't all that bad. In fact, it was my favorite bit of the tour. Those women we had on backing vocals, they were something else. Their harmonies were incredible. I used to get them to come to my hotel room in the dead of night and practice with me. Their sound was unreal. Man, I loved those women. Almost as much as bourbon. Fresh trouble. We played Tel Aviv on that Heartbreakers tour. That was my first time in Israel. I found it fascinating. The crowd, though, they were less excited about my show. They moaned about, about, guess what? The usual. They wanted a greatest hit set. Well, I don't do that. I do what I want. You don't want to just get up there and start guessing what the people want. You can't let the audience start controlling the show. Write that down. That was a great tour. A great, great tour. I'm stunned we can even remember it. Well, I can remember it fine, thanks. You seem to have forgotten a pretty awful moment in it. Remember? It's not ringing any bells. It's not ringing any bells, sure. If you have something to say, quit whining and fucking say it. Gary Schaffner. Oh, here we go. You're all high and and mighty? Yeah. Maybe just lay off the booze for a second and we can... Give me a break. Are you going to tell them the story or should I? I haven't got time to discuss hearsay, hurt feelings, or... Okay, so Gary was our road manager. A road manager sorts out hotel arrangements, media obligations, support staff, equipment, all that stuff. God, this is all terribly fascinating. Gary was more than a road manager, though. He was a really good guy, and I, we... Okay, okay, enough. I'll tell them. Gary was our road guy, and at one point on that tour, he had to leave. He had to head back to California for some private business. Britta Lee, a woman on tour with us, was Gary's girl and a musician, too. Gary loved her, worshipped her. But while he was gone, we got close. We had an affair. We had an affair. Gary had been devoted to us, and... Let's not lay it on thick, okay? These things happen. Sometimes they just happen. We betrayed someone close to us. Look, she was part of it, too. It's not all down to me, you know. But you're here, and she's not. I still remember the faces of everyone when he left the tour after he found out. Man... 
That was awful. Oh, please, you're loving this. I felt shame, disgrace. What? And I didn't feel those two? You remember his statement when leaving the tour? I suppose you have a copy of it, do you? Bring it with you wherever you go, huh? This is what he said when he left. It was a privilege to be there for the years I was there. As an artist, I respect the guy. As an artist, he respects us. Not a person. I honestly don't blame him. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing. Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a man in the corner of the room. He's dressed all in black. He smiles and asks if I'm ready. I say yes. I can feel the excitement pulsing through my blood. At this point in my life, my musical path was no longer clear. It was overgrown, full of vines, and I knew it. There was a missing person within me that I needed to find. I fantasized about leaving the music business. That tour with Tom Petty, I was convinced that was my last. One last payday to see me through to retirement. What would I do next? Go to church? Sail the seas? Live in another country? Italy? Scotland? Greece? I had no idea. You can't force yourself to change. I even called up a business expert I knew. I told him I wanted to sell everything I own. To invest in something new. He came round to my house with a brochure for all these different businesses. I was interested, no doubt. It felt like an escape route, a new horizon. Why not turn into a businessman? That felt easy, enticing, revolutionary even, for me anyway. Most interesting. A more conventional life called me and again, I deserved it. The albums I had been making for the past few years weren't really doing it for me and In fact, I felt like they were doing it for less and less people. If it doesn't interest you when you're making the music, it probably ain't gonna interest other people when they're listening. I made the album Knocked Out Loaded. Tom co-wrote a song on that, but the real gem was Brownsville Girl. 
The critics love that one, and I can see why. I wrote it with the playwright, Sam Shepard. We were at a creative dead end in the studio, which was pretty common for the time. Sam said we should tell stories, so we both exchanged a couple of good ones. One of mine was about going to see a film, what's it called? The Gunfighter. That's it. It stars Gregory Peck. Sam jumped up and said, that's it. Let's write a song about that. So we wrote this epic. A beam of light shot into my mind when we did that. I felt like I was off again, off to the races with my writing. But while in that moment there was joy and excitement, it made the aftermath even worse. After that brief second of inspiration, I was straight back into the wasteland, straight back to torched grass and dry wells. It was a false dawn. I still couldn't write. There's always a bottom after the bottom. The rest of the album sort of passed me by, and so did the next one. Renewed despair. After that record, I injured my hand. I thought I might never play guitar again. I remember looking at it one day, the plaster cast up to my elbow, and I remember thinking, what if I never play the guitar again? Honestly, I didn't feel that bad about it. I had no connection to inspiration of any kind. Even my own songs were strangers. Fresh disappointment. The injury forced me home. I spent time with my new wife. I did nothing. Mornings were spent in bed. Afternoons were spent falling asleep in my armchair. The nighttime, that's when I was awake, and even then I would just sit around. One night when everyone was asleep, I was at the kitchen table staring at the hillside. I could see nothing but a bed of shiny lights twinkling in the distance. I don't know why, but I picked up a pen with my good hand and wrote. And I wrote and wrote and wrote. Wasn't all that bad. Nothing had changed. Nothing was different, except I couldn't stop writing. I finished with 20 verses, which became the song Political World. It emerged like a fire hydrant bursting open, completely out of the blue. It was like someone had struck a gong and brought me to my senses. When I finished writing, I looked down at the scratchy page. Moonlight was cast across it. I knew then I could use these words. It felt like the start of something. Look closely. The next week I was in New York. I'd been to see a play and had some drinks. On the way back to the car, I passed a homeless man being ordered to move by some cops. His head was in his hands. The whole thing was desperate. Everyone in that situation looked hopeless. Renewed despair. That night at home in my little art studio, I wrote the song, What Good Am I? It came to me all at once, delivered from up above, inspired by that homeless man. The next morning, I was at the breakfast table again. We had the radio on, and I heard the sad news that Peter Marovich, the basketball player, had died. He collapsed on the court and never got up. Almost instantly, I wrote the entire song, Dignity, for Peter. They kept coming and coming. One, two, three. They continued like that for a while. I kept writing them on these sheets of paper, then stashing them in a drawer in my house. I couldn't understand where they were coming from. You can't force yourself to change. I had some people over for dinner one night. Friends from far and wide came. One of them was Bono the front man for you too. 
I like Bono. He's kind of a philosopher, but tough. He could have been a New York City cop in another life. After the dinner, everyone else had gone to bed and it was just the two of us polishing off a crate of Guinness. Yeah, an Irishman brought a crate of Guinness to my house. The stereotype is true, man. We watched a freighter make its slow way across the ocean from my giant window and we spoke about everything from the history of America to religion and then, inevitably, music. I changed so many times. Bono asked if I'd written any new songs. I tensed up immediately, thinking of the drawer with all my sheets of paper in it. Yeah, I said in kind of a dead-end way. Can I see them? he asked. I could feel the sheets of paper now. It was like Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart. They were beating like a subway train in that drawer, giving me away. Da-dum, da-dun, da-dun. I hadn't shown anyone those words. I'd not said anything about this new inspiration, nothing at all. I didn't know if I was ready. I didn't know if I could face it all again. That made me feel lost. But Bono, he's persuasive. He looked them over as he drained the final drops of Guinness. You should record these, he said. He told me he had just the guy to help. It has to happen naturally. Before I knew it, I was standing in the great city of New Orleans, shaking hands with Daniel Lanois. Daniel had produced some pretty successful records for Bono, and he said we would be a good match. Fate seemed to have taken me into a gulf stream, just when I thought it was the end. Once again, I found myself on the verge of a new existence. It's interesting if you look closely. The first thing you notice about New Orleans is the burial grounds, the cemeteries. I saw so many when I first got there. I remember passing one and I felt like I was leaving behind whatever existence I'd been living over the past few years. It felt cleansing. I strolled to this huge house just off of Audubon Park, one that Daniel had rented for the recording sessions. I felt nervous. I did some things I wasn't proud of. I felt like if I didn't do these words justice, it might really be the end for me, and while that prospect of the end had seemed intriguing and even comforting after that Tom Petty tour, this time I wasn't ready to say goodbye. My heart began to beat faster as I walked up the drive. I pushed open the front door, took a look around, and saw Daniel standing there dressed in all black. He was noir through and through, man. Are you ready, he asked. I'd never been so ready. Fresh trouble. We emerged that next month with one of the best albums of my career. Oh Mercy was a true rebirth. Maybe, I thought to myself, maybe I'm not done yet. I called up that business expert, the one that came to my house with the investment opportunities. I rang him the day after we finished the record. I'm gonna put everything on hold, I told him. Something new has come up. The lights of the Odeon Marble Arch Cinema shine brightly against the gray London sky. All sorts of famous faces make appearances on the red carpet, 
heading towards the cinema's glass doors. Standing at the top of the red carpet is Gerald Abrams, executive producer at Phoenix Entertainment Group. He nervously pulls back the sleeve of his Savile Row suit jacket to reveal his gold Rolex. It is 8.15 p.m., getting close to the point of no return. Hyde Park looms in the distance. The huge banner hanging to Abrams' side reads in glossy red letters, Hearts of Fire Premiere, London, October 9, 1987. Abrams scans the faces of the people walking towards him for what feels like the millionth time that night. Damn, he mutters before checking his watch again, and it is still 8.15. He catches the eye of producer Jennifer Alward looking hopefully at him, but her smile disappears when Abrams shakes his head. The two spend the next half hour waiting for the film premiere's most notable absence. It's not the picture's director, Richard Marquand, who sadly passed away from a stroke only a month before. It is, in fact, the film's top-billed actor who, despite being paid a reported $1 million, is nowhere to be seen. He's got 15 minutes, Abrams mouths across the carpet to Alward, who forces a smile. Just then, Abrams spots a man with curly hair, wearing a leather jacket and gloves with the fingers cut off and sporting an earring in his right ear. It must be, he thinks to himself, it must be. The bodies on the red carpet finally shift to reveal a man's face. Abrams exhales and hope goes with his breath. It's not the man he's looking for. He checks his watch again, 8.16. Barely five minutes away from the theater, Bob Dylan sits in his usual suite in the Mayfair Hotel, surrounded by magazines and cassette tapes that sit upon an unmade bed. Plates of food cover the counter. A loud knock at the door. Dylan stands up slowly, walks to the large entrance hall, and opens the heavy ornate white door with a loud click. Ah, Mr. Goldsmith, he announces. Go on in. The legendary concert promoter, Harvey Goldsmith, stomps into the room, moving like he's a bee's nest on two legs. Is everything okay? He asks Dylan. I don't usually get summoned to your suite. Dylan had seen Goldsmith leaving his show the night before. He felt a little embarrassed to even mention it. Goldsmith inhales slowly and sits on a large armchair. I saw you get up and I saw you leave, Dylan says. Didn't you like it? I didn't, no, comes Goldsmith's sharp reply. In fact, I hated it. The rain starts to fall on the suite's window pane. Dylan cracks a smile. You know my eyesight's really bad, I mean... It's awful, but among 10,000 people in the Wembley Arena, you were the one I saw sneaking out halfway through. Goldsmith doesn't smile. In fact, he's annoyed. He proceeds to explain to Dylan that the UK was his biggest audience outside the States, which meant he had to deliver high-quality shows there. What he played the night before was just crap. More silence, more rain. That familiar London in the autumn pitter-patter sound on the window. Goldsmith waits for Dylan's reply, hoping for a reaction. Didn't matter if it was anger, regret, disappointment. He just wanted a reaction. Dylan gives him a reaction, all right, and laughs loudly. It's okay, Harvey, he shouts. It's okay. Don't worry about the shows. I'm going to the bar. You want a drink? Goldsmith pulls out his invitation to the film premiere of Hearts of Fire. Dylan's face front and center on it, flanked by the singer Fiona and actor Rupert Everett. Dylan's name is in large typeface. Now it's Goldsmith's turn to laugh. He smiles, holding up the invitation. Aren't you coming? That, Dylan says. No, no, I'm going to the bar. 45 minutes later, 
Dylan polishes off his third gin and tonic of the evening. The muted lights of the Mayfair Hotel bar make the raindrops on its window twinkle. Inside the Odeon Marble Arch, Gerald Abrams sits slumped in his cinema chair. He knew what he was watching was garbage. He knew it was going to bomb. And maybe that's why Bob Dylan didn't show. He looks up at the face on the huge 75-foot screen. Dylan looks slender, tanned, and healthy. A genuine film star. But the face that looks into the glass in the Mayfair Hotel bar is bloated and red with darkened eyes. It's exhausted from an endless life on the road and bears stresses that its inhabitant doesn't care to show. Outside, it starts to rain again. This time, it's a hard rain. It hammers down. Large drops splatter violently against the bar's window. Dylan continues to drink. And the splatter of the rain gets harder and harder, louder and louder, and Dylan thinks to himself, you know, that sort of sounds like blood on the tracks. Blood on the Tracks is produced by Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. It's hosted and executive produced by me, Jake Brennan. Also executive produced by Brady Sadler. Zeth Lundy is lead editor and producer. This episode was written by Ben Burrow. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Mixing and sound design by Colin Fleming. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. This episode featured Chris Anzalone as Bob Dylan. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. Follow Double Elvis on Instagram at DoubleElvis and on Twitch at DisgracelandTalks. And you can talk to me, per usual, on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. 
I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.